Section 8 of Jurisprudence. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Michael Fascio. Jurisprudence by John Salmond. Chapter 5. The State. Part 1. Section 36. The Nature and Essential Functions of the State. A complete analysis of the nature of law involves an inquiry into the nature of the state, for it is in and through the state alone that law exists. Jurisprudence is concerned, however, only with the elements and first principles of this matter. An exhaustive theory of political government pertains not to jurisprudence, but to the allied science of politics. From the lawyer nothing more is required than such an understanding of the essential nature of the state as is sufficient and necessary for the establishment of sound judicial theory. A state, or political society, is an association of human beings, established for the attainment of certain ends by certain means. It is the most important of all the various kinds of society in which men unite, being indeed the necessary basis and condition of peace, order, and civilization. What, then, is the essential difference between this and other forms of association? In what does the state essentially differ from such other societies as a church, a university, a joint stock company, or a trade union? The difference is clearly one of function. The state must be defined by reference to such of its activities and purposes as are essential and characteristic. But the modern state does many things, and different things at different times and places. It is a common carrier of letters and parcels, it builds ships, it owns and manages railways, it conducts savings banks, it teaches children, and feeds the poor. All these cannot be of its essence. It is possible, however, to distinguish, among the multitudinous operations of government, two which are set apart as primary and essential. These two are war and the administration of justice. The fundamental purpose and end of political society is defense against external enemies, and the maintenance of peaceable and orderly relations within the community itself. It would be easy to show, by a long succession of authorities, that these two have always been recognized as the essential duties of governments. The Israelites demanded a king that he, quote, may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles, unquote. And this conception of the primary end and aim of sovereignty obtains recognition still as true and adequate. Leviathan, as Hobbes tells us, carries two swords, the sword of war and that of justice. This is the irreducible minimum of government action. Every society which performs these two functions is a political society or state, and none is such which does not perform them. How much activity in other directions may be profitably combined with them is a question with which we are not here concerned. We are dealing with the definition, and therefore with the essence, not with the accidents, of political society. It is not difficult to show that war and the administration of justice, however diverse in appearance, are merely two different species of a single genus. The essential purpose of each is the same, though the methods are different. Each consists in the exercise of the organized physical force of the community, and in each case this force is made use of to the same end, namely, the maintenance of the just rights of the community and its members. 
We have already seen that in administering justice, the state uses its physical power to enforce rights and to suppress and punish wrongs. Its purpose in waging war, that is to say, just war, which is the only kind which can be regarded as an essential form of state activity, is the same. These two primary functions are simply the two different ways in which a political society uses its power in the defense of itself and its members against external and internal enemies. They are the two methods in which a state fulfills its appointed purpose of establishing right and justice by physical force. What, then, is the essential difference between these two functions? It lies, apparently, in this, that the administration of justice is the judicial, while the war is the extrajudicial use of the force of the state in the maintenance of right. Force is judicial when it is applied by or through a tribunal, whose business it is to judge or arbitrate between the parties who are at issue. It is extrajudicial when it is applied by the state directly, without the aid or intervention of any such judge or arbitrator. Judicial force involves trial and adjudication as a condition precedent to its application. Extrajudicial force does not. Judicial force does not move to the maintenance of rights or the suppression of wrongs until these rights and wrongs have been authoritatively declared and ascertained by the formal judgment of a court. The primary purpose of judicial force is to execute judgment against those who would not voluntarily yield obedience to it. Only indirectly, and through such judgment, does it enforce rights and punish wrongs. But extrajudicial force strikes directly at the offender. It recognizes no trial or adjudication as a condition of its exercise. It requires no authoritative judicial declaration of the rights protected or of the wrongs punished by it. When a rebellion or a riot is suppressed by troops, this is the extrajudicial use of force. But when, after its suppression, the rebels or rioters are tried, sentenced, and punished by the criminal courts, the force so used is judicial. To shoot a man on the field of battle or at a barricade is war. To shoot him after capture and condemnation by a court-martial is the administration of justice. In addition to the essential differences which we have just noticed, there are several minor and unessential differences which are commonly, though not invariably, present. The chief of these are the following. 1. Judicial force is regulated by law, while the force of arms is usually exempt from such control. Justice is according to law. War is according to the good pleasure of those by whom it is carried on. Inter arma legis silent is a maxim which is substantially, though not wholly, true. The civil law has little to say as to the exercise by the state of its military functions. As between the state and its external enemies, it is absolutely silent. And even as to the use of extrajudicial force within the body politic itself, as in the suppression of riots, insurrections, or forcible crimes, the law lays down no principle save this, that such force is allowable when, and only when, it is necessary. Necessitas non habit legem. Within the community, the law insists that all force shall be judicial, if possible. This protection against extrajudicial force, this freedom from all constraint save that which operates through the courts of law and justice, is one of the chief privileges of the members of the body politic. 
we accept it now as a matter of course but in older and more turbulent days it was recognized as a benefit to be striven for and maintained with anxious vigilance two in the second place judicial force is commonly exercised against private persons extrajudicial force against states it is clear however that this is not necessarily or invariably the case it is not impossible that one state should administer justice between two others or between another state and itself and on the other hand it may wage war with its own subjects or with pirates or other persons who do not constitute a political society three thirdly the administration of justice is generally the internal while war is generally the external exercise of the power of the state in other words the state commonly proceeds against internal enemies by way of judicial and against external enemies by way of extrajudicial force the administration of justice is the right and privilege of the members of the body politic itself those who stand outside the community whether they are individuals or states have no claim to the impartial arbitrament of judicial tribunals and may be struck at directly by the armed and heavy hand of the state yet this also is merely a general and not an invariable rule four fourthly and lastly in the administration of justice the element of force is commonly latent or dormant whereas in war it is seen in actual exercise those persons against whom the state administers justice are commonly so completely within its power that they have no choice save voluntary submission and obedience it is enough that the state possesses irresistible force and threatens to use it its actual use is seldom called for in war on the other hand there is commonly no such overwhelming disparity of power and a state which in this fashion seeks to impose its will on others must usually go beyond threats to their actual execution hence it is that in the administration of justice the element of trial and adjudication is in appearance far more predominant and important than that of force viewed externally and superficially this function of the state looks like the elimination of force as a method of the settlement of controversies and the substitution of peaceful arbitration but it is not so force is the essence of the administration of justice no less than of war but for the most part it lies latent and concealed the establishment of courts of justice marks not the substitution of arbitration or force but the substitution of one kind of force for another of public force for private of judicial force for extrajudicial of latent and threatened force for that which is actually exercised as states increase in power this difference between their two essential functions is intensified in feeble turbulent and ill-governed states the element of force in the administration of justice tends to come to the surface the will of the state no longer receives implicit obedience from those who are subject to its jurisdiction it may be necessary to execute the judgment of the courts by military force and there may be little difference of external aspect between the use of judicial force in the execution of a judgment and the use of extrajudicial force in the suppression of riot rebellion or civil war section thirty seven secondary functions of the state the secondary functions of the state may be divided into two classes the first consists of those which serve to secure the efficient fulfillment of the primary functions and the chief of these are two in number namely legislation and taxation legislation is the formulation of the principles in accordance with which the state intends to fulfill its function of administering justice taxation is the instrument by which the state obtains that revenue which is the essential condition of all its activities 
the remaining class of secondary functions comprises all other forms of activity which are for any reason deemed specially fit to be undertaken by the state. This special fitness may proceed from various sources. It is derived partly from the fact that the state represents the whole population of an extensive territory, partly from the fact that it possesses, through the organized physical force at its command, powers of coercion which are non-existent elsewhere, and partly from the fact that its financial resources, due to the exercise of its coercive powers by way of taxation, are immensely beyond those of all other persons and societies. Considerations such as these have, especially in modern times, induced the state to assume a great number of secondary and unessential functions which, in a peaceful and law-abiding community, tend even to overshadow and conceal from view those primary functions in which the essential nature of the state is to be found. Section 38. The Territory of the State. The territory of a state is that portion of the Earth's surface which is in its exclusive possession and control. It is that religion throughout which the state makes its will permanently supreme, and from which it permanently excludes all alien interference. This exclusive possession of a defined territory is a characteristic feature of all civilized and normal states. It is found to be a necessary condition of the efficient exercise of governmental functions. But we cannot say that it is essential to the existence of a state. A state without a fixed territory, a nomadic tribe for example, is perfectly possible. A non-territorial society may be organized for the fulfillment of the essential functions of government, and if so, it will be a true state. Such a position of things is, however, so rare and unimportant that it is permissible to disregard it as abnormal. It is with the territorial state that we are alone concerned, and with reference to it we may accordingly define a state as a society of men established for the maintenance of peace and justice within a determined territory by way of force. Section 39. The Membership of the State. Who then are the members of this society, and by what title do men obtain entrance into it? In all civilized communities, the title of state membership is twofold, and the members of the body politic are of two classes accordingly. These two titles are citizenship and residence. The former is a personal, the latter merely a territorial bond between the state and the individual. The former is a title of permanent, the latter one of temporary membership of the political community. The state, therefore, consists, in the first place, of all those who, by virtue of this personal and permanent relationship, are its citizens or subjects, and, in the second place, of all those who, for the time being, reside within its territory, and so possess a temporary and territorial title to state membership. Both classes are equally members of the body politic, so long as their title lasts for both have claims to the protection of the laws and government of the state, and to such laws and government both alike owe obedience and fidelity. They are alike subject to the dominion of the state, and it is in the interests of both that the state exists and fulfills its functions. These two titles of state membership are, to a great extent, united in the same persons. Most British subjects inhabit British territory, and most inhabitants of that territory are British subjects. Yet the coincidence is far from complete, for many men belong to the state by one title only. They are British subjects, but not resident within the dominions of the crown, 
or they are resident within those dominions but are not british subjects in other words they are either non-resident subjects or resident aliens non-resident aliens on the other hand possess no title of membership and stand altogether outside the body politic they are not within the power and jurisdiction of the state they owe no obedience to the laws nor fidelity to the government it is not for them or in their interests that the state exists the practical importance of the distinction between the two forms of state membership lies chiefly in the superior privileges possessed by citizens or subjects citizenship is a title to rights which are not available for aliens citizens are members optimo jure while aliens stand on a lower level in the scale of legal right thus british subjects alone possess political as opposed to merely civil rights until a few years ago they alone were capable of inheriting or holding land in england to this day they alone can own a british ship or any share in one they alone are entitled when abroad to the protection of their government against other states or to the protection of english courts of law against illegal acts of the english executive they alone can enter british territory as of right they alone are entitled to the benefit of certain statutes from the operation of which aliens are expressly or by implication excluded it is true indeed that we must set off against these special privileges certain corresponding burdens and liabilities subjects alone remain within the power and jurisdiction of the crown even when they are outside its dominions wheresoever they are they owe fidelity and obedience to the laws and government of their own state while an alien may release himself at will from all such ties of subjection nevertheless the status of a subject is a privilege and not a disability a benefit and not a burden citizenship is the superior residence the inferior title of state membership viewing the matter historically we may say that citizenship is a legal conception the importance of which is continuously diminishing the consistent tendency of legal development is to minimize the peculiar rights and liabilities of subjects and to make residence rather than citizenship the essential and sufficient title of state membership the acquisition and loss of citizenship are being gradually made easier while the legal effects of its acquisition and loss are being gradually made less the present state of things is indeed a compromise between two fundamentally different ideas as to the constitution of a political society citizenship and its remaining privileges are the outcome of the primitive conception of the state as a personal and permanent union of determinate individuals for whose exclusive benefit the laws and government of the state exist residence regarded as a title of membership and protection is the product of the more modern conception of the state as consisting merely of the inhabitants for the time being of a certain territory the personal idea is gradually giving place to the territorial and the present twofold title of membership is the outcome of a compromise between these two coexistent and competing principles it is not suggested indeed that the final issue of legal development will be the total disappearance of personal in favor of territorial membership a compromise between the two extreme principles in some such form as that which has now been attained to may well prove permanent in the present condition of international relations it is clearly necessary we have seen that citizens are those members of a state whose relation to it is personal and permanent and who by virtue of this relation receive from the state special rights powers and privileges if we ask further what is the title of citizenship or how this special bond of union is constituted no general answer is possible 
This is a matter of law, varying in different systems, and from time to time in the same system. English law claims as subjects all who are born within the dominions of the crown, regardless of their descent, while French law, on the contrary, attaches French citizenship to French blood and descent, regardless in general of the place of birth. Viewed, however, in respect of its historical origin and primitive form, we may say that citizenship has its source in nationality. Fellow citizens are those who belong not merely to the same state, but also to the same nation. It is quite common to use the term citizenship and nationality as synonymous, and this usage, though incorrect, is significant of a very real connection between the two ideas. Nationality is membership of a nation. Citizenship is one kind of membership of a state. A nation is a society of men united by common blood and descent, and by the various subsidiary bonds incident thereto, such as common speech, religion, and manners. A state, on the other hand, is a society of men united under one government. These two forms of society are not necessarily consonant. A single nation may be divided into several states, and, conversely, a single state may comprise several nations or parts of nations. The Hellenes were of one blood, but formed many states, while the Roman Empire included many nations, but was one state. Nevertheless, nations and states tend mutually to coincidence. The ethnic and the political unity tend to coalesce. In every nation there is an impulse, more or less powerful, to develop into a state, to add to the subsisting community of descent a corresponding community of government and political existence. Conversely, every state tends to become a nation. That is to say, the unity of political organization eliminates in course of time the national diversities within its borders, infusing throughout all its population a new and common nationality, to the exclusion of all remembered relationship with those beyond the limits of the state. The historical origin of the conception of citizenship is to be found in the fact that the state has grown out of the nation. Speaking generally, we may say that the state is in its origin a nation politically organized. It is the nation incorporated for the purposes of government and self-defense. The citizens are the members of a nation which has thus developed into a state. Citizenship is nationality that has become political. Men become united as fellow citizens because they are, or are deemed to be, already united by the bond of common kinship. It is for the benefit and protection that the body politic has been established, and they are its only members. Their citizenship is simply a legal and artificial bond of union superimposed upon the pre-existing bond of a common nationality. With aliens, this national state has no concern. It was not created on their behalf, and they have no part or lot in it, for its law and government are the exclusive birthright of its citizens. Only by slow degrees does the notion of territorial membership arise and make good its claim to legal recognition. Gradually, the government and the laws cease to be exclusively national and personal, and become in part territorial also. The new principle makes its way that the state exists for the benefit and protection of the whole population of a certain territory, and not merely on behalf of a certain nationality. The law becomes more and more that of a country, rather than that of a people. State membership becomes twofold residents standing side by side with citizenship. 
it becomes possible to belong to the Roman state without being a Roman. The citizens consent to share their rights with outsiders, but the two classes never reach equality, and the personal union stands permanently on a higher level than the territorial. The special privileges retained by citizens at the present day are the scanty relics of the once exclusive claims of the nation to the protection activities of the state. The relation between a state and its members is one of reciprocal obligation. The state owes protection to its members, while they in turn owe obedience and fidelity to it. Men belong to a state in order that they may be defended by it against each other and against external enemies. But this defense is not a privilege to be had for nothing, and in return for its protection the state exacts from its members services and sacrifices, to which outsiders are not constrained. From its members it collects revenue. From them it requires the performance of public duties. From them it demands an habitual submission to its will, as the price of the benefits of its guardianship. Its members, therefore, are not merely, in a special manner, under the protection of the state, but are also, in a special manner, under its coercion. This special duty of assistance, fidelity, and obedience is called allegiance, and it is of two kinds, corresponding to the two classes of members from whom it is required. Subjects owe permanent allegiance to the state, just as they are entitled to its permanent protection. Resident aliens owe temporary allegiance during the period of their residence, just as their title to state protection is similarly limited. An alien, when in England, must be faithful to the state, must submit to its will and obey its laws, even as an Englishman. But when he leaves English shores, he leaves behind him his obligation of allegiance, together with his title to protection. A British subject, on the other hand, takes both of these things with him on his travels. The hand of the state is still upon him for good and evil. If he commits treason abroad, he will answer for it in England. The courts of justice will grant him redress even against the agents of the crown itself, while the executive will see that no harm befalls him at the hands of foreign governments. End of section 8